Hello, I'm Ben Harmon, the Director of Stills, a photography centre and charity based in the heart of Edinburgh. You're listening to Photography Down the Line, a podcast aimed at sharing the ideas of artists, photographers and other people we're in touch with from the photography sector. To learn more about Stills or to support our work, please visit us online at stills.org. And thank you for listening. Hello, am I speaking to Crystal Bennis? Yes, hi Ben. Hi Crystal, thank you so much for sparing the time to do this. Um, I, 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 I tend not to start these episodes by sort of introducing, giving a long introduction to people, but I feel in your case, I have to, um, I have to say something. Having been on your website, crystalbennis.com and clicked on the, um, the, the sentence you have there, interested in everything, um, <laughs> <laughs> I came to your your sort of CV, if you like, and yeah. it's really astonishing because I've spoken to you a few times. I've seen you around stills, but I had no idea of some of the things you've done. So I feel like I have to sort of start by just um, quickly say something about that. So you 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 have a BA in politics and international relations. You studied in Arizona. Mm -hmm. You've worked for the U.S. Senate for the Committee for the Environment and Public Works. You decided not to, having been accepted into law school in New York, you decided to, to move to Europe and you studied an MSc in classics in Edinburgh mm -hmm. and an MA and a PhD in classics in London. I mean, it's just amazing. It's and then ridiculous. A, an MFA in Helsinki, followed by studies of, in photography in, in Paris, which I'd like to ask you about. Mm -hmm. um, and you're currently working on a practice-based PhD um, through Northumbria University. You're a writer, curator, an artist. <laughs> it's <laughs> so a little ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I, one of what I do want to ask is, where are you now, and um, and what might I be interrupting in terms of, you know, all, all of that? I'm assuming that <laughs> I'm assuming that you hadn't just been sitting about during the lockdown over the last twelve to fourteen. No, no it's funny. I am. Um... Uh, an academic friend of mine in London, George Voss, she has this amazing expression, which is called CV dazzle. And I, I, I definitely have that. But for a long time, I felt really like self-conscious about it. And then a few years ago, I just, because I have had a very peculiar trajectory and jumped all over the place and done far too, spent far too much time in higher education. And I, and I always felt a little, maybe a little self-conscious about it, but after having this conversation about CV Dazzle, I was like, I'm, I need to just embrace this strange, strange life history. But um, now it's it's funny. So I'm in Edinburgh. I have an amazing view of the crags at my window, which is just amazing. Um, and I, as much as I love my living room and the amazing view of the crags, I have spent far too much time working at home yeah. in the last year and a half as part of the pandemic, like, like everyone, like not having access to any studio facilities or anything which has really been difficult and stressful as someone who is really interested in in like thinking and writing but also in making so trying to find ways around that has been um yeah has been a definite challenge but I think it's one of the things that's been nice I I stopped at the beginning of the pandemic I just didn't I didn't really feel like doing anything and I I saw a lot of my um kind of colleagues and contemporaries it felt like there was a little bit of like a frenzy of production and part of the way that people kind of coped with all of the uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic was just by like, this outpouring explosion of making and I I just felt sort of psychologically overwhelmed and so I just didn't really do anything for a few months mm -hmm. um and then kind of gradually started to figure things out and I, I made some works um a series of performance lectures, which had been based on a lot of research and documentation I'd collected around sites of scientific research, which is connected to a lot of my current um, work, both in photography, but also in expanded practice. And was making a series of like desktop performance lectures, just using my computer because I was looking around and I was like, what have I got at home? What can I use? Mm. Um, and I never would have made work like that before. and. I'm not necessarily sure I'll continue making work like that, but it was 
really interesting way like experimentally pushing myself um but actually literally just this morning before chatting to you i've been doing um it's gonna sound quite ridiculous but i've been doing um online dive training for advanced scuba diving course in preparation for a photography residency in august where i'll be doing some underwater diving and underwater photography it's part of this project that i'm working on so that's literally what i've been doing this morning which has been <laughs> quite, quite fun um Fantastic. whereabouts will that will that residency be where will it take you so that's um the, the lance Grona photography lance Grona photo the the museum art gallery and the residency they have a um or festival i meant to say they have a residency twice a year which they they um fill by open call and it was supposed to be um this in the spring i was supposed to go there in the spring but obviously things have still been a bit difficult with covid so i will be there for um all of august working on this project some of which involves um well as part of my proposal this is an underwater photography um i'm a certified scuba diver but i'm doing like advanced training to and yeah. sort of refreshing so that i don't do anything stupid yeah. <laughs> um, and, and can you practice in some of the scottish locks and things because i know that i can yeah so i i'm doing this dry suit the dry suit training is what i'm doing which um I have never done before and apparently that's absolutely standard in Scotland diving in Scotland and in the locks because it's absolutely freezing here so everyone does it just <laughs> but I've never really done underwater photography so I'm also like I got an underwater camera quite recently which is an amazing little thing and I've been um, testing it in my friend's bathtub because I don't I don't have a bathtub <laughs> so it's I've never done um, underwater photography and I've certainly never done underwater photography in a bathtub um, I'm not I haven't nailed it yet so I'm still it's it's not quite working um, so I'm still practicing and trying to get to grips with this camera but it's good fun so I'm really enjoying that I was thinking there, I, I should try and sell you one. We had some underwater, well, some sort of splash proof cameras anyway, disposable okay. in, our, in our shop for a while, but I suspect <laughs> you need something a bit more advanced. Yeah, it's um, it's a Nikon, but it's, it's like got an, it doesn't have a housing. It's an actual just underwater camera. It, it feels like a piece of military equipment, actually. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's very simple. I quite like it. It's I'm not in any way like a super camera um, obsessive. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I don't like to just get together and talk to people about cameras. That's not that interesting to me. But I do love cameras, and um, but it's quite simple. It's one of the, it feels really paired back, and it doesn't have tons of functionality. And there's something really nice about that. I really mm -hmm. like when it's just a camera kind of stripped down to its basic. Uh, basic elements but i really need to get it um i really need to get it working that said so yeah, i wonder if with 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 underwater photography as with things like aerial photography that you know whether the military are kind of behind some of the the sort of developed technical mm. developments in that field um, mm. i don't know anything about it but do, do you know does it is it difficult to do i mean are you quite reliant on sort of clear water i I, murky murky images from underwater but yeah i mean i think there's there's definitely a degree of um and also this is something i'm quite interested to find out i'm going to come back to your military thing because it actually connects to some um it's it's amazing how i i tend to work on projects and um it's like quite self-contained projects but it always amazes me the extent to which even these self-contained projects tend to have a lot of overlap um so for example, uh, I'm working on, a, so the, the, the residency in Sweden is connected loosely to um, industrial chemical heritage basically. And there was an artificial island off the coast of Sweden that was created as waste products from this um, industrial chemical company. And so that is, um, the, the artificial island is created entirely of plaster, which was the main waste product from the, the, the chemical company who produces artificial fertilizer um, by synthesizing ammonia. Anyway, the, the chemistry of it's not that interesting. But um, what is interesting is that process of artificially creating the synthetic fertilizer to use in agriculture was created 
um, by some German chemists, and they were the same people who, who the same chemists who were involved in doing chemical warfare during the First World War. So there's like that interesting connection. But then I'm also the other kind of big project I'm working on at the moment is uh, I not I don't want to talk too much about it because it's still I'm still in the middle of doing it. But it's a photo book that I'm publishing with Erskay Connection next April. And it's about um, military weapons development and the development of computers. And it's also looking at the role of photography like as an industry and um, in terms of supplying materials during like uh, the World War, First and Second World Wars, but also like being an active agent in developing photographic technologies that are used for like scientific experiments um, like actual knowledge production and knowledge creation, not just scientific knowledge production and scientific knowledge creation, and not just purely like creating document documentary images, even though they were doing that as well. And it, and and also things like um, so Kodak, like Eastman, mm. one of the Kodak companies was responsible. They got a government contract to enrich uranium in Tennessee that was used in the making of um, atomic bombs. And like, people don't really know this so much. Well, I should say historians of photography know this, but like a lot of kind of contemporary photographers don't really know very much about this history of photography and its implication in these technologies. And then I've been reading this book at the moment is the history of uh, the making of the atomic bomb. And this same chemical company that was responsible for the creation of this island that's the subject of my residency in Sweden, they're like cropping up in this history of the atomic bomb um, because they sold chemicals to the Nazis after the Nazis invaded Scandinavia. And like, it's all connected in this crazy, ridiculous way. And it mm. kind of blows my mind. Um, so yeah, th these things like these cameras that have been developed and it seems like it's just for recreational use to go and have some fun doing like underwater um, cameras. It's kind of amazing how certain aspects of photographic history can be traced very clearly back to the development of military technology, which is sort yeah. of hor horrifying. Yeah, and, and, and evidence of what, you know, what I think we know, which is that photography, I mean, it's such an interesting subject, photography. Mm. It, it just leads you everywhere ultimately i know um how how do you you're clearly very interested in the um this that sort of backstory the history and and the sort of pro processes and you have a, a very you have what i think a lot of us don't have which is a very um a very good knowledge of the sort of science behind photography mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. like. do you do you find it I, I don't think you do because you know you've done an mfa and so on but do you find it difficult to um, kind of translate that into uh, visual art uh, mm. photography or mixed media presentation for, for public audiences? I, I actually do think it's quite difficult. And, um, but I think it's a really interesting difficulty in terms of how to, um, well, I think there's a couple of things because so, I'm very, I'm really interested in the materiality of photography. And I think it's, there's, I don't know if you know, um, Rowan Lear, who's, she's also doing a practice-based PhD, but she's based in Glasgow and she has worked a lot with, um, Michelle Henning was her supervisor. And they did this really interesting program of events at the Photographer's Gallery a couple of years ago on like the staff of photography and looking at a lot of individual component parts of photography, like, um, analog photography particularly but you can also break it down with digital but like where the materials come from you know where the paper comes from where the plastic for film where the gelatin where the silver um all of the chemicals and looking at all of the kind of histories of these component parts and i think it's really important work because in photographic theory i think there's been a a lot of interest in maybe like indexicality and representation and and like what the, what the subject of the photograph is and using that as the kind of central point of doing theorizing. And I think it's slightly lost sight of the fact that photography is like deeply material 
practice and you can't really dematerialize it even if you're just talking about and i think sometimes because you know we all have smartphones and we've got screens and and people somehow see digital practice is like dematerialized practice, but it absolutely is not like they're, mm. you know, you're still talking about rare earth minerals, you're still talking about labor practices. Um, so all of that is really interesting and kind of some of my interest in science and the scientific aspects, both of like the history of science, but also the history of photography as a scientific practice um, is related to those aspects. But also, it's funny because I am like, I'm a sort of dilettante when it comes to, um, when it comes to like photographic chemistry, like I know quite a lot about it. And I, I also do a lot of things practically, but it's funny, like in the, a lot of the forums online where I've learned things about very historic or traditional like 19th century photographic techniques um, that I wanted to use for my own work, you know, there's these there are these guys, they're mostly men, they're mostly older men who are like retired, who have quite a lot of money and who have set up these like amazing chemistry studios, basically, you know, in their garages or whatever. And they are obsessed with technical perfection, absolutely obsessed. And I am like, that doesn't interest me very much. And and, I and it's also really interesting because often the subject matter is, I'm generalizing, of course, but often the subject matter is not the most important question um, for these people. It's really about kind of perfecting the technical aspects yeah. of the chemistry. Um, and for me, it's, I am really interested in the, the history and the materiality, but it also like need, I'm a contemporary artist, you know, it needs to be a tool and, for me, the kind of conceptual underpinning is the most important thing. But yeah, sometimes it can be really difficult to convey that to a public audience, like mm. what, what this is, what it's doing. Um, and I, I, I definitely struggle with that still, but I think you test things out and you get a feel and also text can carry a lot of weight. Um, but it's a really interesting challenge to try to work out how to kind of convey some of these things and also not let it overwhelm and become the most important, not let the kind of the, 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 you know, interesting process become the most important thing. Um, I find that too, especially when um, talking to, you know, sort of amateur photography clubs and so on, that there's this emphasis on, on sort of tech technique and mm. um, achieving a sort of good photograph in inverted commas. Um, yeah and less, perhaps less discussion about the content um, or, or the materiality. Um, yeah. And I feel like there's an awful lot written about, you know, photographic theory and um, really e examining content and um, kind of thinking, thinking about the kind of um, dematerialization um, of photography as, as part of that whole sort of school of thought around dematerialization of the art object. But, but very little of that um, talks about the materiality and mm. um, come to think of it. I'm sure there are there is writing out there, but I can't yeah. think of anything obvious. There's an absolutely great book, and this was recommended to me by Rowan. It's uh, by uh, an author called Nicole Shukin, and it's called Animal Capital, the book. And it's not, it's not all of it isn't about photography, but there's one chapter in particular, which is about uh, the, you know, the high photographic industry at its height in the 19th, early 20th century. And basically the point where photography went from being a sort of um, localized, semi-scientific hobby where it was individual practice to like a mass market operation where you're churning out film and things on it. Mm. huge scale and she's really looking at she it's absolutely brilliant and she's looking in particular at the use of i mean her whole focus is through animals but so she's looking at the the use of animals in the photography photographic industry and how it really wouldn't have been possible without um you know gelatin and bones and all of these things but and and she's looking at the um what do you call it you know the like factory production lines and she's making really interesting analogies between that and then these the the material so she doesn't she doesn't go into so much of like um 
all of the materials every component part but specifically looking at animal um, aspects of of uh, photography materials and it's just it's like such an interesting um piece of i mean i recommend it to everyone great i'll, <laughs> add, I'll add that to the to the episode notes you have to read it um <laughs> but it was it's also really interesting because so actually the so the the time i spent in paris um was at the um, eco des beaux-arts and mm -hmm. I, uh, it's all, it's a very like old school, that atelier mm. style of studying and teaching. Um, and you have to kind of do an interview with each of the artists who is in charge of the atelier and they have to accept you. And it's all very strange. Um, but I ended up studying with Patrick Fagenbaum, who is like an amazing photographer. Mm. And he also is like, he's all doing analog and like he, prints his own work and everything but he's also he's also just an interesting human and he's really interested both in the kind of um material quality like the the photograph as an object but he does also often have some kind of conceptual framework that he's working under but the thing that was so weird for me was that it was all about this technical perfection it mostly just black and white um, photography, so not any kind of weird processes, but some some color as well. Um, and it was about you needed to have such technical proficiency and uh, like exactitude in the kind of visual language. And it was again, it was like not so much an interest in with the students. It almost didn't matter what you were photographing or what you were printing, but as long as it looks like absolutely perfect and looked absolutely beautiful. <laughs> um, and I found that really weird, although it really pushed me technically and it made me become much more competent, particularly in printing. Um, but I did find it like it was quite a strange environment in terms of um, and people were like it was so critical and people were so opinionated and they and about things like, you know, this corner is way too dark and like your shadows are shit and, you know, you're just, you haven't like printed it properly or you haven't exposed it properly. And it was like, nobody cared about what it was, what it was a photograph of or what it was about. And yeah, it was, it was really, it was really strange, but it was still very useful because like I am technically a proficient printer because of being pushed to be a, proficient printer and it is good to have those skills because then you can choose to use them how you want to were you in paris for long was it was we studying there for a year or was it more? i was there for a year yeah. yeah um it was and it's yeah it's just a very straight it's a totally different educational environment than i've been like it felt like being in the military or something where <laughs> it was like it was so emotionally intense and it felt really about like being so hypercritical that you kind of constantly questioned everything that you did and why you were doing it and so much self-interrogation. And I think I think that's definitely stuck with me um, for better or for worse, but yeah. yeah. And, and how did that compare to the MFA in Helsinki? I mean, a chalk and cheese, like it could not have been more different. Um, it, it, Finland is very, in fact, there was almost no criticism in Finland and you had to be in both you had to i suppose the commonality is probably similar to a lot of um our higher education which is you know you need to be very self-directed and self-motivated but in finland it was like you just kind of got on with things and you you know you did what you wanted to do how you wanted to it, it was more like this this sanctity of the artist and the artist's imagination and i also found that frustrating um, but for slightly different reasons. And in Paris, it's very, very rigorous and it's very critical and it's very <laughs> intense. Um, so in a way, it was actually kind of complimentary to have both of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in doing the PhD, it's also really, really difficult. It's just, it, again, it's just another environment in which you're really forced to be very self-critical about what you're doing and all of the you know you need to have a justification and an explanation for every single decision that you make and I think that's that's often really counterintuitive to a lot of like artistic modes of working so yeah mm -hmm. yeah. yeah no but it's interesting I wondered um if you if you were how familiar you were with the Glasgow School of Art and the, the environmental art 
course there, which, you know, historically, you know, sounds like something that sort of falls between your experience in Helsinki and Paris. Mm. Um, but more to the point, I've sort of been looking at looking at your work, and I feel like there are some similarities in the way you have a, a sort of um, uh, a sort of research-based practice, if mm. you like. Yeah. Um, with artists like Christine Borland or Simon Starling, who yeah. famously uh, studied at Glasgow School of Art and have gone out, gone on to have international careers. Um, the way even there are even connections with someone like Simon Starling and his project Rescued Rhododendrons with the way you sort of follow um, the, the history of, um, I don't know, a particular plant species or, mm. um, you know, there are other probably better examples but I'm thinking of um some of the projects you've worked on um how are you sort of familiar with that course I don't know that course but funnily enough um Christine I mean I know Christine's work very well and mm. I know Christine quite well she was my one of my supervisors for the first um two right. years of my PhD she's at Northumbria of course and, yeah, yeah I, I recognize a lot of um similarities in terms of ways of working and I mean the research-based practice is definitely yeah. that's my my way of working and um yeah. and I I really have a lot of time for that way of working and for people who are also working in that in that kind of context as well and that yeah yeah it, spe it speaks to me yeah and, and actually while I mentioned Simon Starling I mean there, there are numerous projects probably of his where he's kind of explored the materiality of, of photography as well as the history and the uh, sort of social political mm. and connections within the, the, the content um, which is yeah what which is interesting to note I think um, yeah I should have a look but you there are you've you've you're, you're very interested in the kind of environmental sustainability of photography and you've worked a lot with plant-based film developers yeah um, and on your website there's some interesting examples of um, images where you've used um, hibiscus thyme um, star anise and gorse um, mm. in the sort of developing of the images can you could you say a little bit a little bit about that yeah so that's been quite an interesting um ongoing pro project and I guess that came from sort of following on what I was saying a bit about the mainly it comes from my education but especially from the PhD where you're really you're really encouraged to be very specific and intentional about practice and because I'm quite interested in ethics um in my personal life you know obviously it's only a matter of time before that then rolls into practice things and I, I started looking at all of the different tools that I was using and where they were coming from and um, so like I'm vegetarian for example and I have been for a very long time and then it, you sort of clicks and like I'm using animal products in my photography practice without even really thinking about it and you know I don't like chemicals in my personal life but again you know the dark room is like you know it's just full of chemicals. You can tell and smell it every time you go into a dark room and every time you use these. And the fact that you know pouring them down the sink is a huge no-no. Mm. So I, I became more and more interested in trying to look again at a lot of these materials and a lot of these processes. And because I'm not interested in perfection, it's also really interesting what you can do and new kinds of aesthetics that you can get from these kind of processes. So. Um, it was something I was already thinking about. And then I was invited to participate in a residency um, by the London Alternative Photography Collective uh, guest projects uh, in 2020, looking around ideas of sustainable sustainability in the darkroom. Mm. And because of COVID, that all had to be, uh, was going to be cancelled, but we sort of found a way to do it online, which was really <laughs> quite interesting. So we had like 10 photographers from all over the country. And we were all independently pursuing our own research projects at home as best we could. And then we would meet every morning to like share research and things. And the, I had been looking into Caffinol, which is the, um, it's an alternative developer that's, it's really simple. And it's, it's been around, recipes for it have been around for a long time. 
and it just uses coffee, um, vitamin C and soda crystals. Mm. And I was looking at the chemistry of that and trying to figure out why that worked and what it was about coffee in that recipe that worked. And through following those trails, it seemed that actually any kind of plant matter would work. Um, so I proposed that for my research project for the residency. And I just spent the couple of weeks testing lots of different recipes and surprisingly it works. And actually I did a, um, it works amazingly well actually. And uh, with any kind of plant matter with spices, but it's sort of since the other people are still continuing to work on the research as am I. And it's actually, I did a, like a control test just using not using any kind of plant matter, just using vitamin C and the soda crystals and water. And even then you get a very faint, like trace image comes through. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually quite amazing. Like we're using, you know, it's like industrial chemical developers is like using a battering ram when you only really need to use like a feather. And, um, and I guess plant, plant matter is more like using feathers than using battering rams um and it's also much it's just much better for the environment and also if it works it works and it doesn't necessarily you don't always with the plant plant matter you don't always get a kind of you don't necessarily get the same quality of um again like perfection um that you can get with or consistency but again i quite like that and if it's appropriate to the project i think it can add it can add something um that perfection i have tacked up on the wall of my studio i have a really it's so banal and cliche but it just says like don't make perfect images <laughs> and uh, like it's really important to remember that sometimes yeah, that, yeah. That, like, we're so yeah. saturated with these kind of like tourist photographs and marketing images and advertising images that are really about manipulating behavior through through staging and through perfection of images and like as artists and photographers I think we have other things to offer and I think we should really fully exploit the fact that we have other things to offer apart from making perfect images so yeah yeah makes me think of the that that saying sort of learn to fail mm. comes from oh my. Samuel Beckett or something yeah I mean that is like 100% my my kind of unwritten philosophy because, and also it's why I'm really like obsessed with doing things myself. Yeah. Doing all parts of the process myself because you, you learn how to fail in really interesting ways. And if you don't have access to these like production methods, you never learn how you can fail in interesting ways. And I think, yeah again just to, to reiterate i think we have other things to offer than perfection so mm -hmm. it's really important yeah now um so so many things i want to ask you crystal but one one thing is which i think is important to mention is the is cern the european organization yeah. for nuclear research yeah and this is somewhere that you've you've, you've sort of returned to for mm -hmm. different projects um could you say a little bit about your interest in, in CERN and maybe, you know, one or two kind of uh, projects that you've worked on either, either there or, or sort of from a distance? I, why did I, how did I get interested? I've been, so my, all of my PhD research and a lot of my research for the last five or six years has been um, the, the main strand of it because I do projects. I'm often kind of working on like three or four things at the same time over longer periods of time. But yeah. the sort of main main strand of what I've been doing for the last six years has been connected to the, I'm not interested. Well, I should say I, I am interested in um, physics research and the output of the research done by physicists at places like CERN. But the thing I'm mo most interested in is the culture of, scientific knowledge production as it uh, unfolds at places like CERN, which is, you know, the biggest center for particle physics research in Europe and how it works, uh, how the structure of these places 
facilitates the scientific research done by physicists who come from all over the world to take place in a relatively frictionless environment. And um, I am also really interested, uh, there's a, this, uh, an idea, there's a, an anthropologist of physics who's called Sharon Trawick, which is like quite a weird job, but she, <laughs> she sort of talks about this idea of physics and physicists viewing themselves as being uber objective, this culture of no culture. Mm. And that just completely fascinates me. I love this idea of a group of people who are obviously a culture, who are obviously creating culture, but who whose self-image is utterly dependent on the idea that they're so objective as to be like outside of culture. Mm. And that's so my, my PhD research involves a lot of field work, not just to CERN, but to other sites of physics research around the world. Um, and I kind of approach it a bit like, like I'm not a documentary photographer. That's not how I see things. And it's not my kind of, that doesn't feel comfortable to me. Um, and so when I go to these places, it is, it is, it might kind of seem like I'm doing sort of documentary photography, but it's some sort of weird mashup. And I don't necessarily know how to like articulate what exactly it is. Um, but it's a sort of ethnography. I, you know, I follow people around. I poke my nose in places where it shouldn't be. I read a lot. I ask a lot of questions. I meet with a lot of different people, like not just scientists. I'm really interested in like, at CERN there's an on-site, um, couple of on-site like hotels. So like I, I like talk to the women. It's almost all women who, um, work as the cleaners in the hotels, the people who work as in the cafeteria, like preparing the food, the administrators, like all of these people who are part of making this place function. Um, and again, I think it's like we were talking a little bit about before of like how to make this interesting visually, but then also kind of comprehensible to an audience like viewers of an exhibition or something and I um I do find that really difficult because it's a lot of information but I think I'm developing some strategies for doing that and um becoming a bit more successful at that but because I find it also fascinating I tend to want to and because I'm like research is very comfortable and natural to me and I tend to find out far too much information and make far too much material and then I get so excited about it and I sort of want to dump like a truckload of material on people and then that's not really very helpful <laughs> it's like over over saturation so um, but so, for example, I was making, um, I became really, really interested in the, the language that physicists use to talk about nature. And it's very, it's often very gendered, yeah. like female gendered, obviously, there's this idea of nature, and it's, it's long, long standing, it's not a recent thing, you know, it goes back to the 17th century and the founding of the Royal Society. Um, this idea that so nature is female gendered and she has secrets and she like holds on to her secrets and she doesn't share her secrets and the job of the physicist is to like prize the secrets away from nature um and sometimes it's more violent language than that um mm -hmm. but that's the kind of idea so i and it's expressed often visually as well as linguistically so one of my favorite things is on the back of the Nobel Prize medal for physics, there's a depiction, it's two women or two female figures and one is the representation of nature and the other is a representation of science. And the female representation of science is lifting up the veil of nature and mm -hmm. nature is like exposing her breasts, which mm -hmm. is obviously like a terrible metaphor for giving up her secrets. And this is on the back of the Nobel Prize medal for physics and it's, yeah. <laughs> it's it's still there and it's like it's completely crazy so so you have these visual representations as well so there's an interesting like visual tradition to tap into and so i've been ma making a series of um of uh, like a, a kind of photo essay um but a very non-documentary type of, of photo essay um and, and specifically you, you, about that 
yeah, you uh, you sent me one um, during lockdown. It's your, oh yeah, your, yeah, yeah. Series of of photo books. Um, yeah, so that's one of them. That's one, yeah. which is. And, which and then I should say, there's there's information on that and other projects on your on your website, which is really informative. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. A bit more. Um, and another um, one of those projects that I love, which I you also turned into a photo book um, last year, I think, is yeah. George Paxton's Remarkable Trees of Ayrshire. Yeah, um, it's great. Which is a brilliant title. And I, I love the images and you were sort of revisiting these sites of these incredible trees, some of which were still there, but not. Yeah. But, and it kind of exposed all the, the, the sort of... Um, issues around access and mm. who, who owns the land now and could was was that a project that you did entirely last year or did is it something you started in that was i started it before yeah because i i actually started it a while ago i so i did all of the photography for that in the summer of 2019 right yeah um i went and drove all because all of the trees in his photo book which i came across in the library at the um, Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh yeah and it's not it's not very well known but it's it's that it's this period of the yeah pre kind of mass production phase of photography when it was um amateurs with big cameras and large yeah. glass plates and things but um yeah it was he was based and he was a brewer in Ayrshire and so I went around and in his album there are 34 trees and I went I well it took me absolutely ages to negotiate permissions and things so that was as much a part of the work as um as making the photographs but and then I drove all around with my where I thought they were and trying to find them and in some cases it just really didn't work at all and I couldn't find anything but it's it's that almost like um what's that silly game you know the visual comparison where you have the two images side by side yeah, sort of spot the difference. Yeah, spot the difference. <laughs> so it's it's a very simple idea, but I think it's it's quite powerful for me because it does tap, as you say, it like I was really also interested in then tapping into all of these issues around access and ownership and maintenance of like kind of preserving natural um heritage and environment and and also the like preservation of um photography objects as well in archival and museum collections because it's quite difficult with um with a lot of older images like if they're on glass plates how do you preserve them how do you yeah. try and make copies of them if you want to exhibit them later or if they're you know silver and they fade and um and also I don't really know I didn't know that part of Scotland very well so it was also kind of indulgence like it's very self-indulgent just to go and spend a lot of time in that part of Scotland um <laughs> and get to know it better which was really nice but yeah I really I really love that project yeah I'd love to dig a, a bit deeper into the um photography collection at the Royal Botanic Gardens mm. borrowed some of Anna Atkins um cyanotypes for an exhibition here a few years ago but I'm, I'm aware they have a, a whole lot more very interesting uh, but like you say it can be can be very difficult to it can be easy enough to make a, an appointment to view objects but it's another thing to um, try and get them on public display, display for all sorts of um, uh, reasons primarily conservation I know um, um, Crystal I wanted to I seen you around stills a fair bit I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you know how how have you been using stills and have, are you are you planning to come back and and use the dark rooms here yes I love stills <laughs> <laughs> I think um it's funny because I think the thing I most love about stills are the people who are there all the time mm -hmm. or who you know who had been there all the time prior to lockdown because it's it's such a fantastic community of people and I just feel so at home there. I mean, also the facilities are excellent. It's, it, ha it has to be said, <laughs> like being able to do, I haven't done any color printing at stills, but just having the facilities, it's so rare. Um, and it's a lovely place to work, but the people make it absolutely fantastic. And I, I was thinking actually, because I thought that we would chat a bit about like some exhibitions or things um at stills and I was thinking there were a couple of things but one of them in particular was it was in early 2019 and I remember 
I booked in, it was um talk, David Grinley talk. Yeah. And I booked in for it and I was like, this sounds absolutely fantastic. And I hadn't met David before. It was my first, my first, <laughs> my first exposure to David. And I was like, <laughs> who is this guy? It was just the most remarkable talk by someone whose mind is just like so expansive and so well informed and is approaching photography in a way that is like completely different to anybody I'd encountered before. And it was, it was some, it was like a kind of theology course plus photographic theory plus sci-fi and I was like this person is amazing and the fact that like David is around all the time and stills and then you know if you spend enough time there you get to spend time with these amazing people yeah yeah for me that is just it's such a bonus really yeah thank you that's a a brilliant plug and yeah David is our our research associate and does does uh, lectures and talks here which we hope to resume very very soon it's Mm. difficult to to do that online I know of course Um, but yeah, he will, he'll find any opportunity he can to come <laughs> and Lacan and Netflix. And, yeah. Yeah. It was just completely brilliant. I was like, yeah. this is amazing. And yeah. that, that yeah. was really wonderful, so. Good. And you'll be pleased to hear we've repainted our dark rooms, so they're looking very smart. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to, um, I'm really yeah. looking forward to getting back and using the facilities again. And, and I also wanted to ask, Crystal, we're running out of time a little bit. Um, what, what kind of recommendations do you have? Is there anything over the last sort of 14 months in particular that you would recommend people seek out? Um, recommendations? Well, I, because, I'm, um, because I'm working on my first sort of big photo book, I, have, I, I love photo books anyway, and I collect a lot of them. Um, but because I've been working on my own, I've been like acquiring new things like a mad person for (laughs) inspiration and ideas and what have I got that I've been really like that is fantastic well I've got some old ones that I just absolutely love so one is um Regine Peterson's Find a Falling Star which is a triptych it's three separate books all in a kind of hard like clamshell case about um different stories around meteors meteorites that fell uh, and the kind of like strange stories around where they fell and who found them which i really love um i also have got i mean it's it's a bit shameless because it's a book published by the same publishers who i'm making my book with um (laughs) But it's a book called Leopold's Legacy by Oliver Liu. It's relatively recent. It's just, um, it's about um, Belgium's empire Mm -hmm. in the Congo. And it's, I think it's just, it's a really fascinating subject. But it's also, he's, um, he's just made a really interesting, like, a book object as well it's got lots of different um paper stocks it's got lots of different types of photos in it you know it's got some collage it's got like a whole section of street view photos which it and it's very like it's not just um it doesn't just feel like somebody who had too many ideas and couldn't decide what to get rid of it's like it feels really intentional there's a real reason for the um multiplicity of approaches to photography yeah and I just think it's it's really interesting um what else have I loved I got yeah oh my god I'm buying too many books um my husband actually just showed me this he said he he said he told me about it ages ago and I ignored him and then (laughs) and then when I'm like hoovering up every photo book in sight he um he showed it to me and it's another slightly older project, but it's Abigail Reynolds. And it was a project that she did about lost libraries along the Silk Road, where she traveled along the Silk Road, sort of documenting all these lost libraries. Um, and again, it's it's quite text heavy, but it, it also has a lot of images, but it's just a really, it's quite, it's quite, I don't, she's, she doesn't necessarily work exclusively in photography so again it feels like quite a fresh it feels like a really fresh perspective on how like what a photo book could be and it's quite text heavy which I like yeah um 
Yeah. I love a photo book. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, that's that's some great recommendations. Um, thank you. I'll make sure we list those and people can seek them out. Yeah, they're fab. Um, yeah, I really need to stop buying photo books. <laughs> yeah. I know the problem. Yeah. They're not cheap. No. But they're wonderful. There's always there's always another one that one must have. I know. <laughs> I can't wait till the art college library reopens so okay. I can go and yeah. do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And and Briefly, Crystal, what's what's next for you? I mean, I, I think some of the things you've talked about are, you know, quite big ongoing projects. But mm -hmm. is there anything? I, oh, and what, God, I haven't even mentioned the When Computers Were Women um, project because you had a display at Edinburgh College mm -hmm. of Art recently, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I was just um, taking some sort of uh, documentation photographs. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but it's funny because that's a big textile project. But for me, it's mm -hmm. about surfaces and so there's a lot of overlap with yeah photography because surfaces are something that i'm really interested in both but no i am i need to finish my phd so that's um <laughs> that, that i'm wrapping that up and then yeah, yeah i have the residency at Landskrona, which i'm really super excited yeah. about i'm really excited to see what's going to come from that and then yeah the 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 book with Ariske and yeah yeah I'm, really really excited about that as well so I've got too much going on actually yeah yeah, yeah it sounds like it it sounds like it's been a really productive time for you which is which is great yeah it all, was yeah sorry was, I was gonna say all within the shadow of, of the crags which I know incredible to look out the window too it's wonderful yeah I feel really really lucky to have that out my window yeah. I always think it's so extraordinary that they're so close to the the center of the city I know. Um, and somehow so sort of hidden as well from depending on where you where you are. I know. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. Quite nice to have a volcano like next door. Not a bad view. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, Krista, I've pro probably run out of time there, but it's been really, really good to speak to you and really look forward to seeing you at Stills again soon. And thank you for the big plug for Stills as well. <laughs> no, it's it's utterly genuine. I wouldn't say anything if I didn't yeah. mean it. So this wonderful place. Yeah, yeah. Well, take care and thank you so much and, and see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It was lovely to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.